The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out that you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on Andy, your host. And today is Thursday, so it's time for our regular weekly visit with the great Dr. Peter Hammond. And we are starting a new series, folks. So let's bring it up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Uh, and um, the title of today's show is The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and its enslavement of mankind. This was this is based on a book, rather, written by Stephen Mitford Goodson, who I had on the show before. Sadly, he passed away. Peter is the curator of this book. There'll be a link to it in the post for the show. And the sale of the book supports his surviving wife. He died quite young. So that being said, Peter, where would you like to start us off today, please? Well, Andrew, I'm not somebody who really understands economics or finances or thinks that it's an, uh, an important part of history. And Stephen Mitford Goodson, who's a good friend and a favorite guest speaker of the Reformation Society, really changed my mind about all this, uh, not just from his books, A History of Central Banking and Enslavement of Mankind and Inside the Southern Reserve Bank, absolutely tremendous books, which are about the only economics and finance books I've ever read, um, because he convinced me that this is the key to understanding so much of geopolitical history, the wars of not just the 20th century, but the last three or four centuries, which is mind-boggling to consider, because I'd always thought geopolitics and maybe religion, ideology and so on, and personalities played the key role. And uh, he injected the idea that actually most of the wars of the last three centuries have been bankers' wars, which is quite a statement. So this book, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind, I've read it before, I've read it years ago, but I recently was convicted to really read it again. And it's it's so powerful because to understand the key, that this is a key that really helps one understand the role of money lenders in history. Uh, once uh, acute observers called the hidden hand, and it is a hidden hand, the power to create money, to lend money, to accumulate interest on what they call credit, and then to relend that interest for further interest in perpetuity, it creates pervasive worldwide debt from the individual to the family to the entire state. I mean, the, the fact that Great Britain still today is paying off war debt from the First World War may boggle some people's brains. Uh, the fact that 500 billion 
pounds borrowed from the Rothschilds banks back between 1914 and 1918 uh, that still Britain owed 1.2 trillion just a few years ago <laughs> when this book was written. Uh, how, how was it that debt so compounded that a century later they still owed something like four times more than what the original debt was? And uh, I don't think people understand the phenomenal power of debt worldwide debt, not only for the individual and the family, but to the entire state, which means all the taxpayers, the ability to operate a fraudulent credit and loan system has long been known. And through all the slickness of snake oil salesmen, the money lenders, the same kind of money lenders that Jesus whipped out of the temple, have persuaded governments that banking is best left to private interest. But many wars and revolutions and depressions, recessions and other social upheavals have been directly related to the determination of these moneylenders to retain and extend their power and their profits. That's what it is. It's power and profits. And when any state or individual or idea has threatened their scam, they've often responded with wars and revolutions. The cultural and material progress of civilization often relates to the degree to which it is free from the influence of debt and the degradation that results when moneylenders are permitted to regain power. And so Stephen Mitford Goodson, who's a well-qualified economist, uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson was, in fact, the director of the South Reserve Bank for nine years. And uh, he's a graduate of Stellenbosch University and the University of Ghent in Belgium. Uh, he's a very well-qualified uh, economist and really understands the whole situation well. And it was a privilege to know him, to have him around as a regular guest and at our meals and uh, suppers and lunches uh, here at Livingston House. And I was requested by his family to do his funeral, and that was a solemn duty. Uh, but Stephen Goodson showed that both world wars and the Napoleonic Wars and the American War of Independence and the rise and fall of Julius Caesar and the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya and the revolution against Tsar Nicholas and so much more relates to this hidden hand in history. And this is the key to understand the past, the present, and the future. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Prince Mangasutu Butalesi, of KwaZulu, he's the traditional prime minister of the kingdom of KwaZulu, he wrote the foreword to Stephen's book. And in it, he said that uh, uh, <laughs> many people are going to find this book controversial. And uh, But he says he, uh, although what he's giving is doubtless controversial to some, Stephen Goodson has the credentials and the track record to make a credible presentation on the subject which he has researched for decades and which he personally, as director of the Southern Reserve Bank, uh, has insights to. And he says that he believes reforming our central banking and monetary system is absolutely essential for freedom and prosperity in the future. And that Stephen Goodson's film, a book, this uh, history of central banking, provides a broad sweep of the history of economics over three millennia with insights how the problems of usury, and the confounding and enslaving of mankind first began through the practice of usury or charging interest on loans. And that this banking system is undermining our sovereignty and the sovereignty of all countries if we cannot issue publicly issued currency free of debt, uh, then we are bound for enslavement. So Prince Mangasuda Bulezi says the private money produced out of debt by the private banking system is enslaving our people and frustrating attempts at prosperity and progress. The general population has not benefited or thrived since South Africa gained its so-called freedom in 1994, says 
Prince Mangasura Berlesi. And one of the defects is our monetary system. If we want real freedom, it requires monetary reform, and that requires understanding the complex issues of how money is created, to whom does money belong, and whose interest does it serve. And uh, that many of the entrenched social problems we are facing, like low economic growth, high unemployment, declining services, are directly related to this usury, this banking system, and that as an inspiration for political action, what we need is to understand this book. So that's high um, a praise from a man like Prince Mangasuda Budalesi, one of the most veteran, respected, uh, and long-standing uh, political uh, figures and statesmen in South Africa, president of the Nkata Freedom Party, uh, the prime minister to the king of KwaZulu. Um, and he quotes President John F. Kennedy, who famously said, without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed. No republic can survive. And that is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it is a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. These days it seems to be a crime to be controversial, but uh, Solon once said in Athens, it's a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. Well, just a, a word that I remember an insight given by Stephen Goodson, one of our Reformation Society meetings. He said, the South African Reserve Bank is not South African, it has no reserves, and it isn't a bank. And he said the same thing about your, your Federal Reserve, that the Federal Reserve in America is not federal, it has no reserves, and it's not a bank. And that may shock some people into just thinking for a moment. But to summarize this, this tremendous book, uh, survey this book, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavements of Mankind, by Stephen Mitford Goodson, um, I'm going to be quoting mostly from him and, and summarizing from his book here. He says, history is the most crucial subject of any education system because history controls your culture, your traditions, your beliefs, your ethos, your very reason for existence. And if history is compromised by falsifications or omissions, then that civilization will decay and finally collapse. And he says, as you will notice from the slow disintegration of Western civilization since 1945, because of the huge amounts of falsifications and omissions in the history of the first half of the 20th century and beyond. He then quotes from George Orwell, who in 1984 expressed the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of history. And so the further you go back into history, the clearer the picture becomes. And for any nation or state, or society or community to have full sovereignty and independence in its affairs, absolute control over the means it employs to exchange goods and services must reside with the organs that represent the people. It cannot be delegated to private individuals or private banks. And so throughout recorded history, state control of monetary supply has been synonymous with prosperity and peace, cultural enrichment, full employment, zero inflation. But when private bankers I like to use the word bankster, taking gangster and banker and putting it together. Private control by banksters of the uh, control of currency creation inevitably results in reoccurring cycles of prosperity and poverty, unemployment, embedded inflation, enormous, ever-increasing transfer of wealth and political power to a tiny clique who control this exploitative monetary system. And so it's vital that, that we understand this, that Private bankers since ancient times have abused monetary systems, whether based on coin, banknotes, checks, or electronic transfers, by creating money out of nothing as an interest-bearing debt. 
And the solution, he says, is simple and self-evident. We must dismantle the fractional reserve system of banking and supporting central banks, or we will be destroyed and consigned to oblivion. So Stephen Goodson begins with how usury destroyed the Roman Empire. Aristotle said that money is barren, and it is a perversion to consider money as something that can produce prosperity. Now, money is only a means of, of exchange, and people called bankers we shall hate, for they enrich themselves while doing nothing. That's a quote from Aristotle in his book on politics. So Rome was founded by Romulus and Remus in 753 BC on the Palatine Hills, and the Roman Republic was established after the last king was expelled in 509 BC. And so they initially used the cowl as a major uh, money system, not just as a barter system, but cattle were a medium of exchange in ancient Rome. In fact, there were a thousand cattle kept in the Aegean stables of uh, King Augeas. So at a certain point, somewhere around the 7th century BC, uh, the Romans took to using, instead of cattle, lumps of copper or bronze, irregular lumps, which were uh, called ius rude or rough metal, and they were weighed. And so the value of the money was purely in terms of the weight of the copper or the bronze. And uh, uh, then they started to have stamped metal and bronze coins, which had intrinsic value, but it was also based on law as to how much value was placed upon it in accordance with what was stamped on it, the stamped value. Well, uh, the Senate of Rome, and you would have seen the term SPQR, which stands for uh, Senatus Populisque Romanus, or the Senate and the people of Rome. So the political leaders were renowned for frugality and honest virtue, and they regulated currency in exchange uh, uh, basically looking at the population and amount of trade. And there was zero inflation in the first several centuries of, of Rome. Um, so they had they had a means of debt bondage where a free man could offer the services security for a loan with interest. And this had to be worked off. Well, this was later abolished in 326. And the patrician elite, now in about the 3rd century BC, obtained the privilege to mint silver coinage. And uh, the first to do so uh, took a sack of coins, silver coins, into the temple of Juno and converted uh, by, as they said, magic, a, um, a sack full of silver to five times its original value by stamping a new value on the coins and pocketed a huge difference in all the um, value to his private account. So uh, these patricians or the elite of Rome now started the silver coin uh, age where starting with a denarius and uh, uh, they were able to facilitate trade but in order to get more silver because there wasn't enough silver in, in uh, the Italian peninsula they had to expand their armies uh, to conquer more lands to get more silver and so the Roman peasants who were drafted into the uh, military to get the silver well of course that meant that Rome moved from having food independence to uh, where they needed to increasingly import food because they no longer had food independence because so many of the farmers were now in the army um, trying to get more silver from other countries. And so agricultural production declined. Peasant farms were replaced by huge estates worked by slaves. The slaves had to be imported from North Africa along with the wheat. And 
uh, tensions start to ro rise, fragmentation of Roman society uh, er er erupted, uh, the working class citizens were alienated as the patricians were getting richer and richer with this silver coin backed currency, uh, which the army was uh, invading more lands to loot in order to get more silver. And they no longer had agricultural integrity, cohesion. Uh, they were no longer self-sufficient. They, they now needed an expanding empire to sustain. So piracy became a major problem. And raids took place on the coast. And villas were sacked. And travelers were kidnapped. And violence became endemic. And gangsters and terrorists were active throughout Rome, especially in the city. And the inevitable consequence of a society in which money had become the highest ethos. And so instead of being a stable society with absolute agricultural integrity and self-sufficiency, Rome now became a parasitic empire that needed to invade others in order to feed this desire for more and more silver coins, which they could multiply to five times its value simply by stamping a different value on the coin. And political intrigues amongst the elite uh, multiplied. There was lots of discontent amongst the poor. There was social unrest. And as more and more slaves were, were bought up with, of course, the silver coins, which are now um, made to be more valuable than they were intrinsically, led to all kinds of slave revolts, the first and second slave revolts in the second uh, century, and then the great one by Spartacus in the first century BC. And the role of the Jewish moneylenders was key in this. They were first craftsmen, peddlers, and shopkeepers in Rome, uh, but as shopkeepers, they increasingly got into moneylending. And so uh, these moneylenders, who were all using usury, played a significant role in the decline and collapse of the Roman Empire. Now, Julius Caesar is described as a tall, fair-headed man from a, uh, who, from a brilliant family, aristocratic family. Uh, he was practicing law first before becoming a brilliant military commander. He conquered Gaul between 59 and 52 BC. He defeated Pompey the Great, and he became undisputed leader of the Roman Republic. Now, uh, Caesar was a very populist person. He, he very much cared for the average person, and he was seen as the representative of the poorest people. And Rome had become absolutely crowded with the homeless, who had lost their homes because of increasing taxation and the and the slaves working them off their land so that they weren't needed anymore because they had slaves who could do it cheaper. And so 300,000 people were fed daily at the public granary in Rome. And Rome was filled with the homeless and uh, the land was dominated by usurers, land money um, lenders and land monopolists, as he describes it. And that the whole of Rome was at the mercy of a small group of usurers, of these shopkeepers who were moneylenders as well and dealing in the silver coin. And the interest rates were being charged by many of these Jewish moneylenders were as high as 48% per annum, which is absolutely ruinous. And you can see how this fed more and more wars, imperial attacks in order to bring in more so that they could uh, survive. And they were living on debt upon debt upon more debt. Now, Julius Caesar saw this. And Julius Caesar fully understood the evils of usury and how to counter this. And he recognized the profound truth that money is a national agent. Money should be created by law for national purposes. No class of men should withhold money from circulation and hoard so as to cause panics so that speculators could advance the rates of interest or buy property at ruinous prices after panics. And so he instituted a lot of social reforms and monetary reforms. And amongst other things, um, Julius Caesar, 
remitted large amounts of, of rent, which was being charged, which was ruinous. Uh, he provided allotments of land for poor citizens and discharged war veterans uh, to farm. And he provided free housing to 80,000 impoverished families, increased the soldiers' pay from 123 denarii to 224 denarii, regulated the corn dole, um, made sure that provincial communities were enfranchised, that wasn't just the city of Rome dominating, but the communities in the rural areas also had a say, and also fixed the calendar and the Julian calendar, which which uh, s- solved a lot of problems uh, by um, fixing it as 365 and a quarter days from January the 1st, 44 BC. Now, as monetary reforms are far more significant, state debt levels were immediately reduced by 25%. He controlled the mint, he took control of mint away from the patricians, those who believed in usury, to government where there was to be no interest. And cheap metal coins were issued as a means of exchange, not just silver. Uh, he ruled that interest couldn't be levied at more than 1% per month, uh, put a cap on, on interest, and decreed that interest could not be charged on interest, and that the total interest charge could never exceed the capital loaned, such as how Britain is still paying off uh, over a trillion pounds of the war debt of about 500 billion that they borrowed for the First World War, for example. Uh, So slavery was abolished as a means of settling debt, and aristocrats were forced to employ the capital, not just to hoard it. So a lot of monetary reforms, and it shouldn't come as any surprise that Julius Caesar was murdered. He was the hero of the people. He was the one who's lifting up the people. He was the one taking on the bankers. And so 60 conspirators stabbed him to death. He died of 23 stab wounds on the Ides of March, 15th of March, 44 BC. And shortly after Caesar's death, the Romans adopted the gold standard, which uh, led directly to the demise of the Roman Empire, because uh, there were very few gold mines in Europe. Uh, There were few in Wales and Transylvania and Spain, but they were very remote and could only supply a small amount of the need. And the that insatiable appetite the empire for gold meant they had to turn east. They needed more armies, larger armies, more expensive armies, which were engaged in constant conflict at the fringe of the empire to conquer lands that had more gold so that they could bring gold in, which is absolutely essential for the whole economic system of usury and interest that was going on in, in the Roman capital. So the scarcity of gold uh, or commodity money uh, was used uh, to such an extent, they they now started to change the weight of a denarius. The gold denarius went from 122 grams to 72 grams, and there was uh, all kinds of uh, things to be able to undermine uh, that uh, clipping of coins and uh, melting down and creating more. uh, Debasing the currency. Well, debasement was not tolerated. The Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor emperor of the Roman Empire in the 4th century AD, personally ordered death for counterfeiting, burning of public minters who committed falsification. Uh, Debasement of the currency was not tolerated, and the gold currency had to be set. They they, uh, uh, set it at 70 grains, and uh, uh, the bazant was used uh, as as gold coins. Well, with the Edict of Milan, uh, Christianity was legalized, and uh, from Emperor Theodosius, Uh, Christianity was made the official religion. And a feature of the imperial era was social injustice and undermining the business class through excessive taxation. The Roman Empire fell by overly taxing the middle class, uh, obviously in order to enable them to maintain a huge army to loot the provinces 
and uh, they continually uh, monetized the society and the rich parasited themselves off the common man and treated the common people more like slaves. And so just another symptom of the declining respect and importance for the common man and law in Roman society is they abolished the jury system. People weren't judged by a jury, but by a patrician judge. Well, uh, the Emperor Constantine decreed that one-tenth of all income had to be tied to the church, uh, the Roman church. And this also hastened the destruction of the empire, far more um, taxation and the concentration of wealth was more and more concentrated in Rome. And in fact, vast hordes of gold, tons of gold were concealed and concentrated behind the 100-foot thick walls of the fortress city of Constantinople and the Vatican fortress in Rome. And the Roman Empire in the 5th and 6th centuries became parasitic, continually alternating between inflation and deflation to lead to economic ruin of the middle classes and a massive transfer of wealth to the richest classes, to the elite, to particularly those who controlled the money system. And almost all food now needed to be imported because they weren't producing enough food to feed themselves at all. And usury is practiced on unprecedented scale. And the wealth of the entire empire was held uh, by about 2,000 families. Uh, so not even 1% of the world's population controlled just about all, all the wealth. And the rest of the population lived in poverty. So the consequences were that the Roman Empire couldn't even protect itself. They couldn't even convince their own people to become soldiers. In fact, their people went for smaller and smaller families until one child of family was more common, and sometimes not even that. And so they were employing foreign mercenaries, Goths and Vandals, to protect them from Goths and Vandals. And the collapse of the Roman Empire was absolutely inevitable. Agriculture was so reduced, commerce stagnated, the arts and sciences were lost, even the knowledge of cement making was lost, it absolutely disappeared, the Roman Empire collapsed, because they now just wanted to live for bread circuses, uh, orgies, uh, drunken parties, and uh, slaves did all the work, and uh, they couldn't even defend their own empire, they needed foreigners to be made mercenaries to defend the Roman Empire, which in the end, they didn't even bother to do. So, not only that, but there was a degradation of the genetic value of the nation of Rome as they continued to bring in more and more slaves and imported more and more foreigners to do their work so that the people in Rome were now soon outnumbered uh, by the foreigners. And there was a continuing decline in Roman female fertility and slaves came to outnumber citizens by five to one and the whole economy collapsed. And Stephen Goodson concludes that the lessons from the fall of Rome are a dishonest economic system will inevitably contribute to the force of disillusion. No society can function and prosper if the means of exchange uh, cannot be issued debt-free. And the charging of interest on, on the, the creation of money uh, is a recipe for enslavement. He then goes into the origins of the Bank of England. Of course, after learning about Rome, it becomes so much more uh, plain what happened to England. They followed the same uh, same pattern. Benjamin Disraeli, Prime Minister of Great Britain, said all great events have been distorted. Most important causes have been concealed. If the history of England is ever written by one who has the knowledge and courage, the world would be astonished. And that's the point. Um, history is often being distorted and the real causes are being concealed. So Stephen Goodson noticed that King Offa, who ruled the Kingdom of Mercia, uh, was the one who established the first monetary system in England, which was 
silver. He used silver coins, and uh, the, because it was silver, and they stamped an old star on it, which uh, the old English word stella is where sterling comes from. So one pound sterling meant a pound of silver. One pound sterling. And at one stage, on the currency notes, when the Bank of England was issued, I promised to pay the bearer on demand one pound in silver. And uh, I remember when the South African Rand had, I promised to pay the bearer on demand one pound, uh, one rand in gold. And uh, money... Uh, used to be terms of weight of precious metals, whereas the note was not money. The note was merely a promissory note. And you can see how that's deteriorated over the years. So the standard unit of exchange was a pound of silver divided into 240 pennies. And the pennies were stamped with a star. And uh, so the word sterling comes from that. And King Offer introduced a statute prohibiting usury, charging of interest on money lent, um, is condemned in the Bible many times, and it was condemned uh, not only by King Offer, but King Alfred the Great uh, in the dooms of King Alfred, the common law of England. It made clear the biggest emphasis, no usury, absolutely no charging of interest, which, of course, it's biblical not to charge interest on loans. And um, Edward the Confessor decreed not only forfeiture of property, but any usurer was to be declared an outlaw and banished from the kingdom for life. So usury was completely uh, made illegal. Now, Stephen Goodson notes that uh, in 1066, with the invasion of the Normans under William the Conqueror, the Jews started to arrive. And they came from Rouen and Falaise in Normandy, uh, where William the Conqueror was born, and uh, that they financed the invasion of England by William the Conqueror. Now, before William the Conqueror's Battle of Hastings, 1066, usury was utterly and completely banned in England. And in came the moneylenders and usury from 1066. And they charged interests on to the English people of 33% per annum on lands mortgaged and 300% per annum on tools of the trade. 300% interest. I mean, how can one do this? So within two generations of Battle of Hastings, one quarter of all English lands were in the hands of the money changers, these uh, usurers, uh, as uh, Stephen calls them. And, for example, one of them, Aaron of Lincoln, in 1186, was declared the richest man in England, not that he had done any work, but simply through money lending, he had become wealthier than King, Edward, uh, King Henry II. Now, these Jewish immigrants undermined the ethos of the guilds and exasperated the British merchants by selling a vast amount of goods under one roof and undermining uh, the way the English um, merchants class had operated up to then. They also played a prompt role in clipping of silver coins, melting of the clippings into bullion and plating tin with silver in order to, of course, um, uh, give debased currency, which meant that people were getting what they thought was silver, but actually it was tin with only silver plating. And uh, they said that these moneylenders acted like a sponge which sucked up all the wealth of the land and hindered all economic development. So many nobles were in danger of losing their lands through usury and taxation in the 13th century in particular. In 1207, an enormous sum of £60,000 was levied in taxes on Christian population. Now, the Jews technically paid tax, but at such a low rate on such a grossly understated amount of income and wealth that practically it was the Christians being taxed and the Jewish moneylenders who got the money. 
uh, through the interest being charged to the state for the currency that had been loaned to them, so-called uh, by the bankers or the money changers. And so many people had to ha hand over their mortgages, which meant they lost their lands. It was seized for failing to pay uh, the sufficient taxes, which was particularly overdone by King George. Uh, I should say King John. From 1199 to 1216, King John was utterly reckless in the pursuit of his depraved, dishonest policy of taxation and inflation. And he was utterly incompetent, utterly beholden to his Jewish moneylenders and proliferates, just to quote some of the terms here. And that's what led the barons forcing King John I to sign Magna Carta, which entrenched the rights of Englishmen uh, to their property and, and guaranteed trial by jury and forbade usury. In fact, that was the biggest emphasis on Magna Carta, the oldest statute in the world, the first written restriction of powers of government. And it was because of King John continuing to allow these money changes to absolutely deplete and to um, loot the, the country and transfer wealth from the landowners and the population into the hands of a small group of money changers. And uh, then we see King Edward coming to power, and King Edward 1272 to 1307 realized that these money changers had no place in society. And so on the 18th of July, 1290, he compelled the entire Jewish population of over 16,000 to leave England forever. And um, uh, he chased the people out and they were allowed to, to leave with their wealth. They only had to pay a tax of one fifteenth of the value of their movables and one tenth of their specie. And they permit to leave with all other of the goods and chattels. Um, and so on All Saints Day, the 1st of November, 1290, uh, all Jews had to be out of the kingdom or they were in danger of execution otherwise. And the main purpose here was to abolish usury. And so with the abolishment of, of usury, uh, charging interest on bank loans, um, and the banishment of these moneylenders, there was great rejoicing throughout the land, and they brought in the tally stick, uh, which was able to uh, be a very reliable means of um, a debt uh, repayment, and it was so effective that it led to in the 13th centuries, uh, in the 13th century, a situation where the people had so much leisure time, the average laborer was required to only work about 14 weeks a year. And so many voluntarily gave of their time and talents to build England's magnificent cathedral. So the 13th and 14th centuries were at times into even the 15th century, uh, times of phenomenal uh, expansion of some of the greatest architectural masterpieces in history, flourishing of the sciences and arts and Western civilization, these magnificent cathedrals, which were three generations of work. Uh, people had so much more leisure time. Uh, they they were only a, having to work a uh, limited amount, like 14 weeks of the year, and they enjoyed about 160 to 180 holidays, um, days of holiday in, in a given year. And so because they weren't paying interest, they weren't paying that much tax, and uh, therefore leisure time and the fostering of culture uh, flourished, really, uh, in the time following the expulsion of the money changers. Well, sadly, uh, this changed um, uh, when King Henry VIII came to power. King Henry VIII, who ruled from 1509 to 1547, most people know he's the king who had six wives, um, and uh, he uh, beheaded a couple of them as well. And uh, uh, King Henry VIII allowed usury to come back into the land, but it was banished 
by King Edward VI, his son, by the Act of 1552, usury by the word of God is utterly prohibited, a vice most odious and detestable, and England went back to another golden era. Well, uh, this golden era came to an end, um, sadly, uh, when large numbers of Jews who'd been expelled from Spain in 1492 uh, by Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, because of their persistent involvement in usury and unethical business practices, they settled in the Netherlands. And although the Dutch at that time were an important maritime power, uh, the money changers based in Amsterdam, uh, who desired to return to England, became very involved in intrigues. And so during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, uh, quite a number of these uh, money changers settled in London some of them practicing as goldsmiths and accepting gold deposits uh, for safekeeping, then issuing loans 10 times the amount of gold received as gold receipts, uh, fractional banking, loans of interest. And this was the forerunner of the fraudulent fractional banking system, where they initially lent to the crown or treasury at 8% per, per annum, and then it increased to 20 and then 30% in income, and then up to 33% per annum. The legal rate was that you couldn't have more than 6%. Uh, per annum uh, interest, and yet these money changers managed to go not just up to 33% of the state, but with the common people, the workmen, they charge them 60, 70, and 80% interest per annum, which is absolutely ruinous. And uh, so uh, they say that um, uh, in a short account of the Bank of England, Michael Godfrey uh, says that two to three million pounds were lost through the bankruptcies of goldsmiths and the disappearance of their clerks as there was an attempt to find out what on earth was going on. Uh, well, uh, there's quite a lot about how uh, there was a second Jewish migration into England under Oliver Cromwell in 1655, as a large amount of the finances needed uh, for the new model army came from the Netherlands, uh, from these money changers who, as a um, exchange, required that they would be free to come and visit uh, and, and move into England, work there again well. Uh, the Council of State subcommittee declared that these money chains would be a grave menace to the state and to the Christian religion, and these merchants uh, would be a, a threat. And the English merchants, without exception, spoke against the readmission of uh, Jewish moneylenders and said that these proposed immigrants would be morally harmful to the state and would enrich foreigners at the expense of the English. And uh, they came back. They came back in droves and... Uh, you can see how there was a, uh, an act of encouragement of coinage, and so private persons, in other words, bankers, were unable to mint coins uh, and obtain a huge amount of, of interest, uh, hundreds of percent. Sadly, William of Orange's military campaigns that came in uh, to England in the Glorious Revolution of 1688 were also heavily financed by these Dutch finances, these money changers, and it shackled Britain in debt and led to the increase and multiplication of debt greatly. And Shakespeare put prophetic vision in the mouth of the dying John of Gaunt in the play Richard II. In Act Two, scene one, the land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation throughout the world, is now leased out, I die pronouncing it, like to a tenement or pelting farm, England bound in with triumphant sea, whose rocky shore beats back the envious siege of watery Neptune, is now bound in with shame, with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds, that England that was wont to conquer others 
has made a shameful conquest of itself with parchment bonds and uh, inky blots indeed. And so at this point, the Bank of England established 1693. Uh, the bank has the benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. I mean, that's actually what William Patson wrote in a pamphlet in 1693, a brief account of the intended Bank of England, that the benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. And they began to fleece the English people in perpetuity by allowing the creation of the country's money out of nothing, but charging interest. And so the racket of usury and fractional reserve banking escalated so dramatically with the establishment of the Bank of England and how it came about was absolute fraud. So the House of Commons had 514 members at that time, 243 Tories, 241 Whigs, the Tories being Conservatives, the Whigs being Liberals, and 28 Independents. Well, two-thirds of the members were country gentlemen, and uh, the bill was debated in July 1694, at the high point in summer when most of the rural members were engaged in uh, summer harvesting of their crops. And so on a fateful Friday, the 27th of July 1694, when the Charter of Incorporation to the Bank of England was granted, there were only 42 members. That's out of 514 members of Parliament, only 42 were present. All of them um, uh, liberals, <laughs> because all the Conservatives opposed the bill, and they all all the Whigs voted for it, the 42 are there, and there was no other parties present. And so just 42 members out of 514, not even 10%, passed this bill. And uh, <laughs> the bill doesn't even mention the Bank of England. Uh, it's sort of two-thirds of the way down in some unintelligible verbiage um, uh, secretes the information that basically what they did was they brought about a system where the Bank of England would issue currency at interest to the and the British Crown, as a result, had to introduce land tax, paper tax, poll tax, salt tax, stamp tax, window tax, um, hearth and chimney tax, a tax on coaches, tax on births, marriages, deaths, and even a tax on bachelors. And the most punitive taxable was an income tax levied at a rate of 20%, applying not only to companies, but income tax of laborers too. And this was to pay back the interest on the loans made to the Bank of England. But here a pattern emerged where unnecessary wars would be embarked on to simultaneously increase the national debt and the profits of the money changers, the users. And these wars were started against countries that had implemented interest-free state banking systems, such as the North American colonies or France and Napoleon. And this pattern continued. Uh, with the Imperial Russia, didn't have a state bank until after the First World War with Lenin, bring it in. Uh, Germany, of course, didn't have a state bank in the 1930s. Uh, and same with Italy and Japan but prior to the Second World War. And Libya most recently. And, of course, Assyria, um, Assyria more recently and Iraq. So interesting how countries which had state banking systems, which distributed their wealth uh, on an equitable base to people and provide the population with the highest standard of living, far superior to their rivals and contemporaries, they were all targeted. And uh, basically other reasons were put forward for the benefit of the poor people recruited in the armies, but the wars that followed the establishment of Bank of England were all wars for the bankers that enriched the bankers and which were against countries that didn't have Rothschild-controlled central banks. And uh, so within two years of its establishment in 1696, the Bank of England 
already had 1.75 million pounds of banknotes circulating with a gold reserve of less than 2% of its value, 36,000 pounds. So only 2% uh, of real gold reserves backing the notes that they were circulating, purporting to offer um, to repay the bearer on demand um, one pound in gold. Well, they didn't even have 2% of that. And now the union between Scotland and England was established in 1707, Stephen Goodson says, motivated no small part by the necessity to control the Royal Mint in Edinburgh, which they did immediately upon seizing Scotland. At 1720, after the conclusion of the War of Spanish Succession, national debt had risen to £30 million, and the state uh, uh, then began the War of Independence against America because America actually had uh, interest-free banks that weren't charging interest. And so they went for America to destroy that. As a result, unemployment in Britain increased uh, to 50%, and national debt soared to 176 million. And every attempt to try and get rid of this uh, Bank of England, such as by William Pitt the Younger, failed. 1797, to pay for the massive, massive debt interest burden, a system of graduated income tax had to be introduced. And that yielded 70 million pounds a year. The war against France was a was instigated by Mayor Amschel Rothschild, whose real name was Bauer, and he controlled the banking houses. He also waged a war against England. Um, uh, England waged a war, I should say, against the United States of America because they did not have a central bank. And so America uh, had had a central bank from 1791 to 1811, but when the 20-year um, charter expired, uh, the Congress refused to renew it. And so Nathan Rothschild declared in 1815, give me control of the economies of a country and I care not who makes the laws. And he says, few understand the system will be so interested because its profits will make them dependent on its favors. There will be no opposition. The British Prime Minister, Spencer Percival, tried to stop the war between England and America, and he was assassinated in the lobby of the House of Commons, the 11th of May, 1812, by John Bellingham, a political radical who had been set up by the Rothschilds. So national debt now, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, rose to 885 million pounds sterling. Completely unnecessary war, with millions of people killed as a result to destroy Napoleon's state bank, which cost the British public a staggering 831 million pounds And the debt from the Napoleonic Wars 100 years later was 2.5 billion by 1914. Before the start of the First World War, they still owed 2.5 billion of the 831 million they borrowed from the Rothschilds for the Napoleonic Wars. So the principal of 504 million had in the intervening period increased fivefold as a result of compounding effects of interest. So usury, charging of interest on loans, is is absolutely ruinous, and it results in a massive transfer of debts. So the the Act of Parliament by which the Bank of England was created mortgaged the whole country, the lands, the houses, the property, the labor, and produced starvation in the midst of abundance. And the affairs of the Bank of England remained secret, and it wasn't until 1833, 139 years after its creation, that any version, a sanitized version as it was, of its accounts was even presented to Parliament. So 
At the start of the First World War in 1914, national debt stood at 650 million pounds. Well, by the end of the First World War, it increased to 7 billion, 7.4 billion pounds, of which 3 billion was still outstanding when this book was produced in, I think the title is, uh, this book was produced in 2013. So 10 years ago, Britain still owed uh, a staggering three billion pounds on the First World War um, costs uh, of what was loaned to them by by the uh, Rothschild bankers. And the Rothschild bankers also controlled a lot of the um, uh, factories such that were producing, for example, Coventry, uh, the shells, the mustard gas, the tanks, uh, the machine guns, and all of that that was used to kill the cream of Europe. Uh, so uh, in World War II, the national debt rose more than 300% from 7 billion in 1939 to over 20 billion by 1945. And um, as of 2014, it stood at 1.3 trillion pounds still owed for the Second World War's debt. And if you take all of the liabilities, states and public pensions on, uh, there's over 5 trillion pounds in debt that the British Isles, the British taxpayers still owes to the Rothschild bankers uh, from the Second World War. Uh, so absolutely staggering. And of course, one can go so much further. This is just the beginning of the series, but showing uh, the history of central banking. Um, we need to look at next stage more into uh, the non-state controlled banks like that of France under Napoleon and Russia under Tsars and uh, uh, the uh, Japanese, German, Italian, and other examples of non-state banks to understand uh, how the fractional reserve banking system of Federal Reserve Banks and the Bank of England, which or the Southern Reserve Bank, which are not banks, which have no reserves, uh, which um, uh, are, are not actually federal but private, and to understand how uh, this system of charging interest on loans which are created out of nothing uh, enslaves people and leads to the phenomenal amount of debts, and not just the debts and the huge taxes people pay, but the vast amount of ruinous wars. And, of course, we will get to see how the war going on right now in Ukraine fits exactly into that. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Um, delighted to look at my records. I've actually um, had Stephen on the show three times. The first time was on September the 27th of 2016, show number 173, for a show entitled Financial Insight and True South African History. And then it was April the 18th of 2017, uh, show number 322. Uh, and that was the the genocide, sorry, I'm just hovering the mouse over it to try and make it, here we are. The genocide of the Boas, that was an article I remember that he wrote uh, for uh, the American Free Press. And then in August, August the 9th of 2017, for a show entitled The Banking Scam Explained in the Simplest Possible Manner. And that's something I believe that you've done extremely well today, Peter. And then uh, we also did a show, a tribute, um, obituary show to, uh, entitled Remembering the Late Great Stephen Mitford Goodson. And that was... Uh, Again, 2018, August the 30th, uh, and I did a show with Paul English, Stephen Mitford Goodson's A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind, back on September the 9th of 2018, show number 775. 
uh, he was a wonderful individual, very friendly, very personable, um, explained things in a similar way to how Peter explains things. So whilst a lot of people who would write a book like this book we're covering of uh, Stevens, many would find it difficult to understand. He made it easy to understand. So he wasn't one of these people trying to be all stuffy and what have you, that it was only for an elite group to look at. He wanted everyone to know about it because he was a Christian. And like uh, any decent Christian, he knew that this system was, I'd go as far to say as blasphemous. Peter touched on it. It's forbidden in the Bible. Uh, usury. You look at all the damage that uh, it's caused. You, I love the uh, what you went into about Rome, about what these people were doing to Rome, how they were bringing lots of foreigners into Rome to serve them. Uh, they were forcing all their wills on the people. Uh, they were starving the people. And it was just like a few um, moneyed families. And that's exactly what we've got running the West today. And they're doing the same sort of stuff. They're enjoying their sex parties like they were back in Rome and all their debauchery. But Rome collapsed, and I look forward to the West collapsing as well. I just find it um, sad that we're going to have to suffer as a result of that. And we need to learn lessons when it does collapse, that these people can never be given this sort of power again. Justice needs to finally be served. Peter, any final comments before we go? Yes, uh, certainly. It, it's... Um not possible to break the laws of God without serious consequences. And I, I think this is what Stephen actually documents, is that when the Bible forbids usury, it's for our own good. I mean, every, everything God has has um, told us in his Ten Commands, and in which summarizes all his other laws, uh, are there for our good. This is the law of liberty. And when mankind says, you know, we don't need God's laws, oh, those Ten Commands look oppressive, and uh, they say, well, we'll do better. Well, isn't it interesting? Those Ten Commands of God, which are actually very few, and they provide enormous amount of freedoms. You know, don't steal, it protects providential property. Uh, don't lie, protects sanctity of truth. Uh, the, the don't commit adultery, it protects sanctity of marriage. Uh, they respect your, your parents, respect your elders. Uh, these are basic things. Don't, don't steal another man's life. Don't steal another man's wife. Don't steal another man's property. Don't steal his good name. Don't be by slander. Don't be greedy and covetous and envious of your neighbor. You know, do to others you want to be done unto yourself. Uh, uh, the Lord made it clear that this is the basis for freedom. And when you're concerned for your responsibilities and you respect life and property, then society works well. But if you violate any of these laws, the result is chaos. And here we've got a society built on covetousness, greed, and lust and immorality, and violence, and even thinking entertainment is watching people getting bludgeoned to death and things like that. Yeah, this is like the gladiatorial sports of Rome where people went to the arena to see people killed. Well, now we see it uh, acted and depicted very uh, gratuitously on the screen. But the, the, the blatant disrespect for everything important in God's law has led to what? People saying, well, I don't want to pay 10% to, to God's cause and church and missions, and we're paying what percent to the state now? And we don't want to obey God's Ten Commands. So now we get how many tens of thousands of laws and <laughs> restrictions? Uh, God's law gives us tremendous freedom. The only restrictions on freedom of speech in the Ten Commands, for example, would be don't lie and don't blaspheme. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Aside from that, you've got freedom of speech. And the only restriction on your conscience is uh, don't covet. Uh, no idolatry. Very simple. 
outside that, you've got tremendous freedom of conscience. And so God's law is a law of liberty, but man's law is oppressive and man's yoke is heavy. And I think what we can see, the bankers come and say, oh, you don't need to save up and work for things. We can give it all to you now. We'll give you a credit card. We'll give you credit. We'll, you, know, you, can get this, you can get everything now. You can get your house, your car, whatever you want. And meanwhile, you don't realize you're getting into a debt bondage where the lender uh, the, the, the borrower is slave to the lender. And uh, uh, I think what Stephen Goodson is showing us on the macro scale, the huge worldwide scale through all of history, is that violating of God's laws leads to slavery. And uh, the devil is a hard taskmaster. And the Lord warned us about this. He warned us about the synagogue of Satan, the murderers, the liars, and all of that they do. And people who do not love God, who do not obey God's laws, who do not respect and honor Christ, well, what do we expect? And we're living in the chaos caused by man's rebellion against God and violation of his laws. So uh, I think, again, it shows it's it's important for us to expose what's wrong. But, of course, what's the solution? Back to the Bible. Back to you, Andrew. Absolutely, Peter. Thank you so much for doing such justice to Peter's excellent book. So, folks, you have been listening to a show entitled The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and Its Enslavement of Mankind, Part 1. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now.